Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. It's great, to, uh, it's great to have you here with us this morning. If you haven't met yet, my name's Jono, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's a real uh, privilege to, to come and to bring the word. And we've been in a series uh, for the last couple of weeks now, really, on this idea of what works. Yeah, who's been with us for the series? Who's been enjoying it? It's good because we're continuing it. Uh, but, but if you've been with us uh, across the last couple of weeks in particular, I've been looking at this idea of, of not only what works, not only the idea that there are things in life that work, and things in life that don't work, that there are ways of living and being that, that bring life and ways of living and being that, that just simply don't. But really we've been focusing in on if we are Christians, if we are people who follow after Jesus, does Jesus have a way? Is there a way of living our lives? Is there a way of being uh, in which we can learn from Jesus and maybe take on some of his ways? And if you were with us last week, I suggested that, that maybe living at a constant sprint isn't actually the best way to live. Yes. Yeah, I want to acknowledge that maybe it's a way that a, a number of us do live. Maybe it's kind of our de facto normal, but maybe we're actually made for rhythm, for work, and for, for rest. That maybe in life we can, we can slow down or at the very least find some space in which we can intentionally... Uh, bring intentionality, I guess, to what we do, yeah. that, that we don't just have to do everything on default, that we don't have to constantly be doing a hundred things at once, but maybe we can slow down enough to simply be present and do one thing. And we finished last week with the encouragement to try and pray a simple prayer throughout the week. Father, help me today to slow down. Help me to, to walk with you and to be present to others. And I hope that, that you are able to, to find that rhythm, to pray that prayer throughout the week. If you were like, oh man, I really meant to, and I totally forgot, I got your notification on Monday, and then it departed from my brain. That's all right, right? We're about the long journey here. And so maybe this week you can start praying that, Father, help me today to slow down, to walk with you, and to be present uh, to others. And so uh, we kind of finished last Sunday, talking about or raising this idea of practicing the Sabbath. And so today, really, what I want to do is I just want to unpack that idea uh, a little bit more. Why don't you bow your heads with me one more time, uh, and, and let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments together. God, as, as we look at your word, as we look at the way that, that you lived through, through the person of Jesus, God, I pray that today it wouldn't be my ideas, God, it wouldn't be me trying to convince us of anything, but that you would speak. God, that today we would leave here encouraged, that we would leave here built up, that we would leave here more assured of the love that you have for us than we were when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so I mean, you know, we've been doing this for a while. We're into the rhythm. I've got a bit of a problem, guys. There's, a, there's time. I get the microphone, and once I've had the microphone for at least two weeks, I feel a compulsion to confess some of my deep, dark secrets to you, right? This is, I've married a clinical psychologist, but obviously that's not enough therapy for me in my day-to-day -day life, and so I involve all of you uh, in a group therapy session whenever I get the chance, right? It, you would think it's dysfunctional, and yet we keep coming back to it, so who knows what's happening, Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but I've got a bit of a, a problem. I have a bit of an obsessive personality. Yeah? And, and what I mean by that, thank you so much. What I mean by that is, is I, kinda, I don't know about you, but I, I have a way of getting fixated on things. Is anyone else a little bit like me? You're like, no, John, we're easy, easy breezy. It's, you know. 
And so I'll fixate on things, be it like a, a bike or, or a new plant. You may have remembered my bold declaration at the start of the year. I'm a plant guy now. I kind of got bored of that halfway through the year, but I'm coming back into it because it's spring and the plants are growing again. They got my attention, right? Or, or maybe, you know, probably this month it was an air fryer. I was like, an air fryer is the way of the future. And I want to say we got one and it is, right? We can talk about air fryer recipes later. Maybe it's new shoes, what, whatever it might be. In my mind, all of a sudden there becomes two points there is before and after, right? Before air fryer and after air fryer. And I become convinced when I get this, once I have this thing, colors are gonna be brighter, right? Smells are, are gonna be smelly. Uh, I didn't practice that one, right? Sounds will be, will be clearer. The world is just gonna be better once I have this thing. Once I have this thing that I'll be missing, I, I, I desire it. And so one of the things I'm really good at is I plan and I scheme, Yeah? because I'm also quite frugal, I don't like wasting money, and so I'm like, I just don't want to, M would maybe disagree with that, but with the, I have the microphone. Uh, and, and so I'll plan, and I'll scheme, and I'll figure out a way to, and so I'll save, and I'll sell things, and I'll put together, it's always been this way. Right, I remember my parents would tell me, M, this is, can we just a little bit quieter, let's see a security team, we're gonna start security teams. <laughs> but it's always been this way, I remember my parents telling me that growing up, I would put together presentations. Yeah, and I, I would, I learned PowerPoint simply for the sole object reason of wanting to convince them that we should get a dog or get another Lego set or get a trampoline or whatever. And I would put, and it, it could be true that I still do put together some very compelling presentations <laughs> every now and then, right? And then finally, my persistence pays off. Right, finally, the object of my dreams becomes a, a reality, and I have it, and, and I open the box, or the parcel arrives, and drum roll, please. It's beautiful. And, and, you know what I mean? Like, you're waiting for it, you're desiring it, you finally get it, you order it, however it is, and it comes, and you open it, and you're like, this is the moment before and after, and you open the box, and it's like, Okay. Like, it's not bad, but it kind of didn't change my life in the way that I was really hoping it maybe would. You know, the air fryer is fantastic, but it hasn't really transformed all of my life. There's not so much a before and after. It's not a, a bad thing, but colors aren't brighter. It's not bad, but, but sounds aren't clearer. And then my eye is caught by something else. I'm like, well, the air fryer didn't do it, but maybe... Maybe this jacket will, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe this new bike, maybe this upgrade will. Maybe if I, I plant these plants in my garden, maybe if I do this now, that, that would make all of the difference. And I'm back into this cycle of, of desire. Can anyone relate? Yeah, that's good. That makes me feel better about myself, right? John Mark Comer describes this, this cycle, describes desire as the engine of our life. It's what drives us to get out of bed in the morning. But, but when you pay close attention to the, the dynamics of your heart, you realize that desire, while it might be the animating kind of force in our lives, it's never really satisfied. A, a, a thousand years before Christ, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, the eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with, with hearing. Right, more recently, philosophers have said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, or I can't get no satisfaction, depending on you know, where you fall. And I, I tried to look up some lyrics from more recent songs, but I, I just don't, I don't know any. So, and they all were kind of rude. Uh, right, no matter what we get, it's like it's never, 
enough. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who's, who's a, a famous philosopher and, and theologian, he once asked the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? What would it take to meet this desire in our hearts to, to be satisfied? And, and he concluded that we would have to experience everything and everyone and be experienced by everything and everyone to feel satisfied. That everything there is to do, everything there is to see, everyone there is to meet, everything there is to eat, all of it, we would have to do all of it to feel satisfied. He basically concluded that we would have to be infinite. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not. We are finite, and so we live with these chronically unsatisfied, unfulfilled desires. The, the word that the writers of the Bible name to, to, to kind of name this inner disquiet is, is restlessness, a restless desire. And, and this is a, an ancient problem rooted in human nature. It's been manipulated by the culture of consumerism in the West, and in particular in advertising, which is basically an attempt to monetize our restless desire. If we haven't met yet, uh, we have two children, right? Uh, Oliver and, and Harriet. Ollie's four. And, and Ollie loves Lego, which is fortunate because I love Lego. Now, chicken and egg, which one came first? We'll never know. It's just a very fortunate way uh, that the world happened to work out. And, and so uh, what's interesting is, is every time we get, I say we because it is a shared experience. It's not just Ollie's Lego. It's my Lego as well. We get a new Lego set. It plays out the same way. We, we get a new set, and it's exciting, and we'll build it together. And currently it is still together, but to my dismay, Ollie's like, Dad, I want to build that bit. And I'm like, okay, but what bit will I get to build? And he's like, Dad, it's my Lego. And I'm like, no, it's our Lego. I, so I'm going to need to start getting my own Lego is uh, my solution to another thing to fixate on. Uh, and, and so we'll build it together and we'll get to the end of the instructions. And there's this beautiful picture, which is also a bit of a cool moment. to be like, oh, that's what it's meant to look like. I think we've built a few bits wrong. Let's go back some pages. But there's this beautiful picture and you're like, we've completed the set. This is amazing. And then the booklet's not done. And you turn the page, and, and at the very end, after the completed set, beautiful picture, there, there is some pictures of the other sets you could get <laughs> and the other things that you could build. And, and every time, without fail, what will happen is Ollie gets to that page, and he flicks to the very final page, and the set before him is forgotten. It's like, that was cool, but Dad, can we get this? Dad, can we get this one? This one would be amazing, right? And, and often we've got him like a, you know, a, a normal priced Lego set. And the ones in the back are like the $300 Lego sets. He's like, Dad, can we get this one? And I'm like, no. I mean, let's put together a presentation for your mother, son. We'll figure it out. I reckon we can. Right? And, and Ollie will literally, this is not, you know, it's not an exaggeration. He would take that booklet. And he will play with the booklet more than he will the Lego set. He'll carry it around with him. I'll find him sitting on the couch just looking at the booklet, being like, we could get this one. I'm like, but you've got new Lego in your room. He's like, yeah, but look at this. This would be so cool. And in the marketing world, this moment at the end of the instructions is what's known as a, a nudge. Just a, just a little, hey, hey, that was nice. But do you know what would be nicer? Hey, hey, that was fun. But do you know what would be better? That was great. But do you know what would be a little bit more? You know, it's interesting, uh, Chris French told me the other day uh, that there's less flavor at the bottom of a can of Pringles, which I don't know if it's true, but it speaks to my experienced reality, right? That you're eating a can of Pringles, and the first ones, they take a ma taste amazing, and you, you get to the bottom of the, the can, and you're like, do you know what I could go for? Another can 
of Pringles. Now, I don't know if it's true, but, but I feel like this is the thing that we experience where life, the flavor, it immediately is great, but it diminishes over time. And it's the same thing that happens to, to Ollie with, with Lego ads, but it's not just Ollie. See, all of us, we would see upwards of 4,000 ads per day. 4,000 ads throughout one day, all of them intentionally designed to leave us feeling unsatisfied, and it works, right? We fall for the old carrot on the stick routine. We chase more money. We chase more clothes. We chase more things, more square meters, more experiences, more relationships, more, 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 but it's, it's never enough. And if madness is described as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, and I don't know about you, but I feel like this constant desire and pursuit of more isn't working, that it's not a way that works. All that to bring us to this idea of, of Sabbath. I don't know what you come into the room with when you think about Sabbath, but, but I believe there's something about living from a place of restfulness that is an antidote to the restlessness that is innate within us, in the, in the world in which we live, that is exaggerated by the consumeristic world in, in which we live. If you, if you have a Bibles, uh, turn with me, we, we looked at it last week, but turn with me one more time to Genesis chapter 2, uh, and we're going to read verses 2 to 3. It says this, Genesis 2, 2 to 3, I'm reading from the NIV translation. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, I don't know about you, maybe that's my kind of stage of life, young children, but when I hear that word rest, the first thing I think of is sleep. <laughs> I'm like, rest is an opportunity to sleep or, or maybe a little bit of margin or, or a day off or a, a few quiet hours or just some time to, to relax. And all of those are good things, but the idea behind Sabbath is much more than just a sleep. Right? It's, it's a holistic rest, or what Jesus calls a, a rest for your souls, for your whole person. In, in prepping the sermon, uh, like I said last week, the, the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Homer is, is incredible, and a lot of these ideas come from it. But he quotes Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book, The Sabbath, who says that, that we rest not just from work, but we rest from even thinking about work. Which is interesting because neuroscientists have examined our brain and they tell us that when we think about work, even if we are not at work, even if we are at home resting, when we think about work, the same chemicals that would be released when we are at work, which are usually stress chemicals, are released into our brains. So when you're at home thinking about work, even though you're not at the office, in your brain, the same thing is happening as if you were. And so even if we're like, oh, I'm, you know, I have good boundaries, I'm not always at work, but maybe you think about work a whole lot, you're biologically working maybe more than you realize. Now, now all of that to say, we're not anti-work, right? Work is not innately a, a bad thing. Notice there is a rhythm, even in this passage in, in Genesis, it's not all resting and no working. God worked, he created Right? Work isn't innately bad. Work, in fact, can be, can be wonderful. We create beauty and goodness in, in working, but we can also work in ways that are not healthy. We need work and rest. We, we could put it this way, both overwork and underwork don't work. Yeah, both overwork and underwork don't work. Sabbath isn't just about not working, about laying around and doing nothing. Pace is important. Stopping is wise. Slow works. But, but Sabbath is more than just slowing down. It's about a rest from the want and worry that is innate within us. 
to unpack this idea, I, I want to get a little bit Bible nerdy. Is that all right? Like, Johnny, you already went there. You don't need to ask permission. Turn with me uh, to, to Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 5. We're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Before we do it, just a little bit of a, a setup as to what's happening uh, in this verse. You, you may know or you may not know that the Ten Commandments are recorded twice uh, in, in the Torah, which is the, the Hebrew word for, for the books of Moses, the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Right, and the first time that the Torah, uh, in, in the Torah, that the Ten Commandments is recorded is in Exodus chapter 20, which is when Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai right after leaving Egypt, and that's probably the one that kind of comes to mind, the Ten Commandments given that, that first time. The second time that the Ten Commandments are, are recorded is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and in this time, it's, it's actually 40 years later, and the people of Israel are on the edge of the Jordan right before entering the Promised Land. So they've been wandering the wilderness, the, the desert for an entire generation. And, and that's the reason that the, the, the Ten Commandments are kind of given again, that there's a reminder of what they are because of those 40 years between Exodus and Deuteronomy. But because in, in Exodus, they get out of Egypt and God gives them the law to define them as people because they hadn't really been a people. They hadn't had an identity. They'd been slaves in, in Egypt. And then in Deuteronomy, it's the sons and the daughters of these people who were freed from slavery in, in Egypt. They weren't born and they were still children at Mount Sinai and they're about to cross into the promised land. And so Moses reminds them, this is who we are as a people. This is what we are about. And it's interesting because most of the Ten Commandments are exactly the same, but the Sabbath command is similar, but a little bit different. Read with me if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to, to 15. It says this. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your, all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, there's two key differences here in this passage in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. The first one is pretty minor. Exodus 20 starts with remember the Sabbath, and Deuteronomy 5 is observe the Sabbath, right? We won't get into that, but, but basically observe means to keep and to protect. And the way that we would observe a, a holiday, which is actually from the root word of holy day, which is what the Sabbath is, right? So it's, it's not just another day. It's something special, like Christmas or, or Easter. It's something set apart that has significance, Right, that's the first change. The second change, though, is, is, pretty, is pretty major. In fact, we'll put it up on the screen. You guys are ahead of me. Well done. In Exodus chapter 20, you see it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and it goes through that kind of creation Genesis account. Yeah, you see that? Now, now in, in Deuteronomy, it says, Remember that you were slaves. Right, so, so Exodus is, is based in this rationale of for in six days, this rhythm of creation, there is a way to live, there is an internal rhythm built into you, it is not good for you to always be working, and that is true, that is what they needed to be reminded of when they came out of slavery, but now in Deuteronomy, they're, they're not just fresh out of slavery, they've started to establish themselves as a power, in fact, they're about to, to go on, on conquest, they're about to establish themselves in the promised land, and so God reminds them of something else, he says, remember you were, past tense, you were slaves in Egypt. So first of all, he's reminding them, hey, you're not slaves anymore. 
But, but, but then he unpacks it a little bit further. We, we could say it this way. At Sinai, Sabbath is about rhythm, right? In Deuteronomy, Sabbath is about resistance. So we look at that and we're like, okay, so one's about rhythm, one's about resistance. Which one is it? Right, like what, is, what is this idea of Sabbath? What is the practice of Sabbath about? And I want to say it's, it's both. Both are important for us. Both are innate within us. Last week we talked about rhythm, about slowing down. And this week I want to look at this idea of, of resistance, which, which surely leads to the question, right? Rhythm we understand. But if we're talking about resistance, it surely leads to the question of like resisting what? What are we resisting through this idea of, of Sabbath? Has anyone else got that question? Yeah, you're like, you, know what? you can turn to your neighbor and ask them. They won't, they won't know because they don't have my notes. If they do know, uh, don't, don't spoil it, guys. Like, keep it, keep it locked. Right? In, in the Exodus story, there's all sorts of, of language about this idea of, of restlessness. Quick, quick recap. Exodus is, is the story of the people of Israel leaving slavery in, in Egypt. Let me show you a few examples. If we, if we chart this up on screen, this is just from Exodus chapter 5. This is all things that, that Pharaoh says about the people of Israel. He says, why are you taking the people from their labor? Get back to your work. Again, later on in the chapter, he says, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working. Later on in the chapter, he says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any extra straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Right in this story in Exodus, Pharaoh is a cruel tyrant. No matter how hard the, the Hebrew people worked, it was never enough. They, they lived under an oppressive yoke, right? Remember that word that we talked about a few weeks ago, a way of doing things, a way of, of life, this daily quota of more, more, more. And it wasn't just Pharaoh, it's the entire socioeconomic system of, of the nation of, of Egypt as a whole. Israel, Israel was making bricks, they were in slavery to make bricks to build what was called supply cities. Supply cities were just simply extra cities to store all of the stuff that Pharaoh and Egypt as a whole had. This was their way of living. Egypt was a, an economic system built on the back of, of slavery. Because to get to the lavish, opulent lifestyle of Pharaoh, you needed a whole bunch of people laboring so that you could rest. You needed slaves. And slaves don't get a Sabbath. Slaves are subhuman. They're a commodity to buy and sell. They only have value in what they produce. They work all day, every day until they die. Rest is what comes when you are set free by God. And so the command in Deuteronomy is remember, you're not slaves anymore. You're not in that place anymore. You are under a new kingdom. You're under a new king. There is no daily quota. There is no taskmaster over your head. And, and then it goes on, and this is key. Remember, never to become slave drivers again yourself. If we look at the patterns of history, we see again and again what happens is that the enslaved become the enslavers that the oppressed become the oppressors, that those who are downtrodden rise up, overthrow, and then continue the same destructive cycle of violence again and again and again. And God is speaking directly to that, saying, you will not be like everyone else. You will not be slaves who then become slave drivers. There is something different. And this isn't just a warning to the, the nation of Israel at a moment in time. right? The Bible speaks to them there, but it also speaks to us here and now. Right? In, the, in the literary design of the Bible, Egypt is a symbol for this idea of empire. Empire is what happens when the dark desires of the human heart shape society. When that happens, some rest and some slave. 
Some live well and some suffer. And throughout the Bible, Egypt and then Babylon and even the Roman Empire, they're held up as examples of of this empire. That's why the book of, of Revelation, it's interesting, there are two chapters devoted to the empire of Babylon in the book of Revelation, which we read and we're like, yeah, yeah, Babylon, that's in the Bible, that makes sense. Except for the fact that when the book of, of Revelation was written, Babylon was an ancient empire that hadn't existed for hundreds of years. Like John on the Isle of Patmos, he wasn't speaking about a current uh, nation state which was at work in the world. He was, he was using an example. In Revelation, Babylon is not a, meant to be a literal place, but it represents, or it wasn't a literal place when it was written, a global economic system of more built on the back of injustice. And so what would happen when, when, when first century readers read the book of Revelation, when they read Babylon, they instantly thought of the Roman Empire. They're like, oh, an oppressive empire that pulls people down, that makes people into a commodity in which many suffer so that a few can live an opulent lifestyle. That sounds a whole like, a lot like where we are living. But, but of course, the early Christians, they could hand around this, this book and, and not get in so much trouble because when the Roman officials were like, hey, this is anti-Rome, you're, you're anti-Nero, you'd be like, no, no, it says Nimrod, buddy. Like, this is about the Babylonian empire. They're, you know, hundreds of years dead. It's got nothing to do with our current reality. Don't worry about it. Right, but it's speaking to this idea of, of empire. And so they understood it as, as, man, this is applicable to the Roman Empire. And so when we read of, of Babylon or of Egypt or of the Roman Empire in the Bible, maybe we should think of, of globalization. Maybe we should think of consumption, of consumerism, of, of materialism, of the world in which we live. Maybe empire is not done. Maybe empire's not over. Maybe it's as, as alive and, and as well as it ever has been. Maybe this isn't just a commandment to the people in Israel in a moment in time, but it's a commandment to us here and now. Now, behind me, uh, this is going to be the least interesting slide that I show today, but it's quite important. Uh, this is the, the global, that's the word empire. This is the global uh, wealth pyramid, right? Don't look at it too closely. I made it small so you can't understand all of it. I just want you to understand the general gist. Uh, if you take too much economic lessons from me, you will go bankrupt. So don't look at it too closely. But uh, basically, this is, this is how the world wealth uh, is, is sorted out. I'm not going to get into Illuminati stuff. We're not going to depart into conspiracy theories. This is just from a reputable source, right? We won't get into anything uh, more as to how it happens or anything of that. But I want to point out this bottom blue section is about 70% of the world's population. Uh, And that bottom 70%, they they control about 3% of the world's wealth. And and then we get to the very top, the little yellow bit. Uh, that's, That's about 0.7% 0.7% of the world's population. That's where we kind of get the idea of the one percenters, yeah? And that 0.7%, less than 1% of the world's population, they control around about 45% of the world's wealth. Sounds a little bit like Pharaoh in Egypt. Just a little bit, right? Like I'm not saying anything big. I'm just acknowledging that there's some parallels here. Now, if you're in the room today, I'm guessing that you're sitting probably somewhere between those top two-thirds. There's not many of us who are one percenters. If you are, I'd like to talk to you after the service. I have a great proposition for you. It's going to double your money in three days. It's going to be fantastic, right? (laughs) But most of us in the room, we we sit somewhere in there. We're probably not in that bottom 70%. And if we are, A, as a church, we would love to support you and help you, so let us know. But also, even if we are, the likelihood of us staying in that bottom percentage for all of our lives living in New Zealand is, is fairly low. Even if we find ourselves in poverty, there's, there's upward mobility, there's, there's ways in which it's, we're not trapped there in the same way that other people experience throughout the world. 
Either way, wherever we might find ourselves on that pyramid, whatever we might read into it, the, the takeaway point is, is that Egypt is horrible if you're a slave, but it's really not all that bad if you're an Egyptian. That living in empire sucks if you're at the bottom, but, but if you're finding yourself somewhere else, other people suffering inconveniently makes your life really pleasant. The reality is that, is that for all of us in this room, there are billions of people who work hard every day to, to make our clothes, to make our shoes, and to make our phones. That, that we might consider our oh, slavery as a tragedy of the past, but, but the world has aged beyond that. We've, we're enlightened, we're past that, except for the inconvenient fact that there are currently 40 million slaves worldwide on Esmer, which is almost four times the number of the transatlantic slave trade. But that was when slavery was. We, we live in a different time, right? My, my point to say all this isn't to make you feel guilty, isn't to, to kind of bum you out, but is to simply point out the fact that Egypt is not just a historical nation or state, that empire is not something that we have moved past, the empire is not something that we have left behind, but that the running theme in scripture is that for a culture of restlessness, there is restless desire. And there are many examples of what that looks like, but, but ultimately it results in a culture of, of unchecked desire for, for more. And this isn't something in which we are only kind of uh, benefiters of. This, this hurts us as well. In the 1960s, with the, the rise of labor-saving devices as you know, dishwashers, central heating, computers, futurists predicted that, that in 20 to, to 30 years, sorry, in a few decades, that we would all be working for like 20 to 30 hours max. In fact, futurists predicted in the, in the 1960s that the biggest problem in the future was going to be that there was too much leisure time and we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. I don't know if that's your lived experience, but I'll tell you that statistically, leisure time is down in the Western world about 40% since the 60s. See, we work more than ever before. And then we also have more stuff. So we work more, but, but also in New Zealand, we currently spend over twice as much per household on services and non-durable goods than we did in 1988. We have twice as much that we're spending on these things, but in spite of working more and having more stuff, we are less happy than ever before. Sociologists tell us that, that on average, happiness levels in the West hit a peak in the 1950s and they've been in decline ever since. See, see, to sum this all up, and I'll, I'll get the band up because I'm, I'm almost done. I, I have the unfortunate position today of presenting to you the stark reality that we work more than ever before. We have more than ever before, but we're still not satisfied. This is the position that we find ourselves in. It's, it's Egypt all over again. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to get sucked into this culture. To speak to last week, that's why we're always going. That's why we live at a sprint. That's why we are always rushing because we need to work those extra hours to get ahead. We need to reach a certain standard of living to, to be happy. We have to participate in certain parts of the economy even though it does harm to the earth and to, and to the poor because how else are we gonna get ahead? It's easy just to say, well, that's just how it is. This is just the way the world works. Everyone else is busy, so I guess it's fine that I'm busy too. Everyone else is ruining things, so I, everyone else is empire, so I guess I'm just going to be empire. But I want to say it doesn't have to be that way. I want to land it here. If you remember nothing else today, maybe remember this. Rest is an act of resistance. That This idea of, of Sabbath, this idea of resting, this idea of saying enough, it's an act of defiance against Pharaoh and empire. It's a way of saying enough, enough work. Work is a good thing, but it's not the thing. 
enough stuff. Stuff isn't bad, but most of us have more than enough stuff. Again, to, to quote John Mark Comer, Sabbath is a way to break our addiction to the twin gods of the West, accomplishment and accumulation. Accomplishments and accumulation aren't evil in and of themselves. They, they can even be good, but, but there is a limit. At some point, I feel like we need to draw a line in the sand and say, this is enough. I don't need to work more hours. I don't need to make more money. I don't need a, a new car. I don't need the perfect grade or the perfect house. I don't need to earn approval. Because that's at the base of all of it, isn't it? Somehow I will earn my way into feeling like I matter. I will earn my way into feeling like I have some innate worth. I will earn my way, well, I've got more than them, so I must be worth more than them, so therefore I'm worth something. We do not need to earn approval. We already have it. Maybe today you need to realize that Pharaoh and his army are at the bottom of the Red Sea. That you're not in Egypt anymore. That you are not enslaved anymore. That we are free. That we have all we need to thrive in God and in His world. That we are in a new kingdom now under a new king. We don't need to subscribe to the way of empire. We can change. And of course, that, that sounds great, right? I've got to show our hands. I'm sure all of us would be like, hey, who wants to be out of empire and then you can be, yeah, we want to do that. That sounds incredible. I don't want to be rushed. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to burn myself out trying to live a life that I don't actually want. But, but my point is this, Sabbath is an act of resistance, which means it's, it's something that we, when you practice Sabbath, you resist, but you also feel resistance. That slowing down in a world that tells you how fast you move is how significant you are, is hard. That choosing to, to stop accumulating, to stop amassing, to stop collecting in a world that says the things that you have will give you value and meaning is, is hard. That we need to acknowledge and, and, and confront the fact that if we are seeing 4,000 ads a day that tell us that we will find satisfaction with just one more thing, that there is a formation machine in which we live in in culture. That this is the air that we breathe, that it's, it's innate in, in our very heart and expressed through the culture in which we live, that we can't change that, that unless we're gonna do a quipper's land, and we've talked about that before. Right? Unless it's an enclave and shutting off from society, there's not a way to remove ourselves from the influence that we find. And we don't want to because we believe that maybe there's actually a better way. Maybe this way doesn't work, but there is a way that does work that we can embrace for us. But maybe it could even go beyond that. That as we embrace it, as it transforms us, that we would transform communities. That others would see us in Sabbath and rest and not pursuing the things that everyone else innately pursues. And maybe we would be more satisfied. That we could bring something of, of a transformation. But when we try and do this, we will encounter resistance. We'll encounter external resistance. The culture around us is Sabbath-less. It's rhythm-less. It's unrested. And going against that isn't easy. When we stand against that, we stand against what Paul calls in Ephesians, the principalities and powers of the world. The theologian Walter Wink defines powers as both heavenly and earthly, divine and human, spiritual and political, invisible and visible. Through Sabbath, through intentional rest, we defy those powers and we align ourselves with the God of the Sabbath of rest. But perhaps harder than that, there's not just an external resistance of the, the world we live in, but there's an internal resistance. Because the reality is, is that Egypt just isn't just out there. Egypt is in here. 
that Egypt is in us to Sabbath, to rest, we have to resist the internal dynamics of restlessness in our own hearts, of greed, of envy, of, of discontentment. There is a tug of war inside of us and we feel a pull towards Jesus and His way and a genuine desire to be with Him, to be like Him, to do what He did, to find rest for our souls. But we also feel a push away from Jesus, if we're honest a push away towards accumulation to, to resist it or, or a reluctance to give up our, our autonomy and self-will to die to ourselves. Right? That sounds fairly uncomfortable and I quite like pursuit of comfort. In the practice of Sabbath, we're going to feel this push-pull dynamic at work within us. But I wanna to suggest today that maybe Sabbath rest is our secret weapon. An entire day to have enough. There may be in those push-pull moments when we have to resist both the external forces and the internal forces that are anti-Sabbath, we can remember we are not slaves anymore. God is king, and he's a king that is nothing like Pharaoh. He is a king who is Sabbath-keeping, Sabbath-commanding, that Jesus called himself Lord of the Sabbath and that he offered us rest for ourselves. The question simply becomes, will we choose rest or empire? We don't have to do anything. God loves us regardless of if we rest or not. God is for us regardless of if we rest or not, but some ways don't work. I wanna say empire doesn't work. It destroys us and it destroys the world and we do not have to partner with it de facto. To finish and I'm done as the band comes up. Last week I encouraged you to slow down. Right, to, to be intentional, to start each day with the prayer, Father, help me today to slow down, to walk with you and to be present to others. This week I wanna ask, what if we took that one step further? What if you found a day this week, if it's a full day, awesome. If all you can manage is an hour, then an hour is better than nothing. And what if for that moment, however long the moment might last, you stopped? You, you, you stopped not just in the, the act of working, and I would strongly suggest that you turn off your phone or you put it in a mode where the work and rush can't distract you and you, and you rest it. And we'll talk more about what rest can look like next week. But, but maybe if you just stopped, maybe if in stopping you remembered that we don't stop when we're finished because we're never finished. It's never enough. The cycle of desire goes on and on and on, but we rest to remind ourselves, I'm not a slave anymore. I'm not what I do. What I do isn't bad, but God loves me before I do anything. And so what I'd like to do today to, to land this moment, hopefully, is, is to take communion together. And that as you go into the week, whenever, however you might Sabbath, you might rest this week, whatever that might look for you to stop, to slow down, to resist, that you would remember communion. That maybe even you would take it again. And that in remembering communion, you would remember that God has done it all, that in Him we live and move and have our being. That like communion, Sabbath is really just a means to an end. What I mean by that is that the ends isn't to take communion or to practice Sabbath, but it's to participate in the love and life of God Himself to create moments in which we can remind ourselves to center our lives around Him, to live more deeply in Him. So this morning, as you take your bread, would you remember that you don't sustain yourself, that God is gracious and kind and loving, that He is and that He always will be enough, that as you take the cup, remember you are not a slave. You are not a slave to empire 
And you are not a slave to the forces of sin and death that form empire because because of Jesus, we are free. That this week, in this moment, and again, as you rest, as you stop, it would be an act of resistance saying, hey, I'm not thinking about the thing that I want. I'm not thinking about the thing that I need to do. I'm simply resting and reminding myself that if nothing else were to happen, this is enough. That God loves me, that He is for me, that the world is bent out of shape and I get to be a part of fixing it. But even in the midst of that, fixing it does not bring me worth. Fixing it does not bring me value. God loves me as I am. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.